Welcome to Movement Memos, a truth out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. The election is now only a few days away, and organizers and activists around the country are working to get out the vote and preparing to defend the electoral process itself. The Trump administration has been fairly transparent about its plans to invalidate millions of votes and to prevent any transition of power from taking place. We know Trump has the support of people like Attorney General William Barr and Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who can manipulate the law on Trump's behalf. We know he has unprecedented support from police departments, and we also know that his civilian supporters like the Proud Boys are on standby, ready to do who knows what to turn the election and its aftermath upside down. In the face of these threats, organizers around the country have formed working groups, action councils, and various other game plans to respond to what's happening. We have been sitting in meetings and holding teach-ins. We have been swapping ideas and sharing resources, because we all bring something different to the table. And the one thing that nearly all of us have in common is that we are off the map of our experience. It's easy to say that if Trump tries to halt the ballot count, that we should all be in the streets. But what does that look like, and what would it mean? Today's guest is my friend Shane Burley. Shane is a journalist and author of the book Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. Shane, thanks for dropping by to talk about fascism with us again. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing? Um, well, it's October of 2020. I just want the whole thing to be over. (laughs) That is entirely fair. Well, it's 9 p.m. in Chicago, so given the late hour and our proximity to the election, I hope you won't mind if I drink. Yeah, I I think drinking is the absolute correct decision. (laughs) Well, the absolute correct decision sounds like a solid jumping off point, so we'll go from there. Diving in. Given what we know about Trump's plan to invalidate millions of votes, the mobilization of right-wing vigilantes, and the GOP's overall strategy, what kind of protest do you think will be needed in the coming days? I, I think what's needed in the coming days is whatever it takes to get huge mass numbers of people out there. I mean, that generally requires some kind of coalition effort, but that means getting organizations, people, all kinds of constituencies, how people group themselves up, how people think of themselves. It's going to require everyone out into mass spaces. And so I think that's going to mean all hands on deck, all approaches necessary, anyone and everyone. With mass action or any protest, the threat of police violence and repression is real. We know that we could see violence play out in the streets, but we also know police do not have to brutalize or even terrorize people to inflict grave harm these days. In the age of COVID-19, with the second wave on the rise, incarceration is a potentially deadly weapon. Jails, prisons, and detention centers have frequently become hotspots for COVID-19. Back in the spring, a study published in Health Affairs analyzed the relationship between jailing practices and community infections at the zip code level in Chicago. They found that jail community cycling was a significant predictor of cases of COVID-19, accounting for 55% of the variance in case rates across zip codes in Chicago and 37% 
of the variants in all of Illinois. The study found that jail community cycling far exceeds race, poverty, public transit use, and population density as a predictor of variants. The authors of the study suggested that the cycling of people through Cook County Jail was associated with 15.7% of all documented COVID-19 cases in Illinois and 15.9% of all documented cases in Chicago. And that was as of April 19th, 2020. We also know that police, like most Trump supporters, are often maskless and totally reckless when it comes to physical distancing. So the police have a biological weapon at their disposal with the second wave rising. And I think we need to be as aware of that as we are of any weapon they have at their disposal. Because what's happening in this country's cages is a major escalation. And it's a fascist escalation. So we have to strategize knowing that, which also doesn't mean staying within the lines because one cannot obediently stop the rise of fascism. It makes me think about all the ways that people claim public space at protests. Sometimes surrender is part of the process. Sometimes it is not. What are your thoughts on getting arrested during all of this? I think that we have, well, we have hundreds of years of evidence, but we also have very close evidence of how the police treat protesters because we've had mass uprisings since May and the police have absolutely brutally assaulted protesters every single night. Uh, out here in Portland, where we've seen over 130 days of protest, there's been an all-out assault on protesters, beating up batons, um, impact munitions, really toxic, smoke and chemical weapons, federal officers using snatch-and-grab techniques. A lot of times this is was simply for, like, you know, violating, you know, dispersal orders or standing in the road or throwing water bottles or lighting trash fires, things that simply no person could look at the situation and think that any of that violence is warranted. So there's a lot of reasons the police act that way. But one of the reasons is that there's this general uh, sense of turmoil that they have to put down, uh, you know, dissent. Otherwise, something even more profound is going to happen. And of course, they believe the hype about BLM and Antifa or whatever, whatever they think is going on. And it's danger for the communities. But coming around the election, that feeling is only going to intensify. And mass actions are not going to be just, you know, kids gloves. By the police. And so I think people should think really long and hard about the real vulnerability that they allow themselves when they do civil disobedience, like, you know, laying down on the road and accepting uh, an arrest. Absolutely. It's important for protesters to understand that they are never safe from arrest. But we all have different risk tolerances. In a particularly fashy moment like this one, I think the way to disobey is to be too big to be stopped. If the cops want to arrest people, they will arrest people. They deal out violence at their discretion. That defines and informs their whole existence, whether people want to admit it or not. But protesters can move in many ways and with varying objectives. People don't just block roads by laying down in traffic, right? They also block roads by moving freely. People can move unpredictably. People can move like water. And sometimes protests cause governments or businesses to shut themselves down, and that's a shutdown too. So I think people should think in functional terms, in terms of disruption. What is our leverage? What do we have the power to do? Because when a power grab is happening, the point is not to raise awareness or appeal to anyone's conscience. 
It's to take power, to flex power, and to establish that you have leverage. There's nothing that's going to happen this year that will change the course without as many people as possible. And so I think people in that way can think of organizing and strategies and, and direct action in particular as ones that are built from the mass of people. And so if we're thinking about direct action and we want to uh, you know, grind uh, uh, just business as usual to a halt to show the significance of the, the people and to actually show that we can you know, have community coalitions ourselves and community coordination ourselves and we can protect ourselves and create mutual aid and do all the great things that we can do by disrupting the system that's not working well or is working against our interests, that has to come from the large mass of people. Um, because we're talking about a large state apparatus that can totally disrupt small groups of us. And so I think when people are thinking of strategies and tactics, they should think about like, what does large numbers of people have the capacity to do? What kind of direct action works in plain sight? Says exactly what we're doing. Um, and I think that looks like maybe space occupations. I think it looks like huge mass marches that totally kind of shut down like the, the roads and things like that. I think it, it, looks like in within those mass spaces, even creating kind of counter institutions, like here, we're taking over space to create a mutual aid support, we're helping people get the different things they need related to COVID. There's all kinds of versions of this, but it's going to require everyone. And so I think that that's how people should start thinking about this. What kind of uh, strategies require 100 people? What require 1000? What require 10,000? What require 100,000 people? Because that's the scale we're talking about. I am just going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal, because Truthout is a nonprofit news publication that has thus far survived the decimation of independent news. But we can't create independent news on a corporate landscape without help from readers and listeners like you. So if you're enjoying the show, please consider heading to truthout.org to make a donation today. If we think about the kinds of direct actions that will like if the goal now is to to freeze things, to shut them down, and that that in and of itself creates an absence of state and corporate power, the most direct way to do that is a strike. So strikes, you know, all over the place would be the kind of thing that could totally grind that to a halt, that could totally create um, uh, um, uh, basically a freeze in the situation. And that requires large masses of people. That's the essence of it, actually. It's not successful with a small group of people. Um, it never will be. That's the, the, the virtue of it. So I think yeah, it, it, there's always, when people are organizing and they're thinking of, like, what's a really good strategy for a situation? They always sort of give up a certain amount of militancy for a mass, and they have to kind of choose that. And I think in this situation, we're looking at something where masses are the only things that matter. We're, we're really dealing with something at a mass scale. Sometimes people are dealing with small, local, specific issues that are a manifestation of a large one. This is one that's going to be shared by the kind of all people all over the place in a lot of ways. So we should try and think of a way to use that to our advantage. So y'all have been through it in Portland. And as we move into this really scary moment, I'm wondering what lessons you might have to share with the rest of us. Well, I think the first one is the one we kind of talked about is that you can count on police violence and, and you should expect police violence. And so she should accommodate for police violence by making sure that if you're having big protest actions, that there are people who are like street medics and they can help you with injuries or you know how to get out of a space in and out um, or you have protective clothing if you can afford it and maybe create systems to, to make sure everyone can afford it. All those sorts of things I think are important. They, they've always been important, but I feel like they are especially important now. 
you know, I, I've been going to demonstrations for, I'm not sure how long, 15 years or something. And this is the first time where I don't feel comfortable going without a bulletproof vest on. So it's different now. And I think that's a, a, a difference that's being shared. Um, there's an escalation both from Trump and also just from the way the police are responding and the way the state's responding. And there's a, there's a whole kind of series of things that is escalating the crisis. Not to mention the kind of uh, third element of a three-way fight, the far right who are coming around in these protests. So that's the second thing I would say is that expect these sorts of vigilantes on the fringe. You know, I was talking to to Vicki Osterweil a couple of weeks ago, and she said something that, I mean, should be obvious, but I think it's not, is that, you know, people are talking about the Proud Boys and other far-right groups, these white vigilante groups, as being a kind of new threat that is sort of taking on part of the police's violence. They're basically engaging in violence with the police not intervening in a lot of cases. And that was true in Portland. On August 22nd, there was a big far-right rally. They attacked protesters, and it was the one time that the police refused to intervene on a protest. And so people are kind of surprised by this. But, you know, like she said, historically, that is a normal dynamic. It's one that's actually really uh, dependable. Uh, There's far right vigilantes from the Klan forward uh, that engage in a certain amount of social control, um, not always with the direct police coordination, but with a sort of like they fill the void that the police have created for them. And it was only really up until like the late 70s into the 80s that, uh, you know, mass incarceration really developed to a point where the policing sort of the police were their own vigilantes to a degree. And that has started to shift a little bit. So I think that's something people really need to consider. And those are the sorts of things that make coming in and out of protest spaces really scary. It makes being a reporter exceptionally frightening uh, because they have been singled out so completely. Um, by the far right. And, and also, and maybe that's the third point, is that you know being a reporter will not make you safer. Having a press badge, having press all of your equipment is not going to make you safer from either the far right or the police, maybe even especially unsafe. So that's something to always keep in mind. But I think, you know, more than anything, we one of the things that's happened here in Portland is that it's the protest is sustained for a very, very, very long time. And part of that, what sustained it for so long was that protesters had a real shared experience of being of receiving police violence. And that common experience uh, really was a binding agent that kept the protest going. But now we've actually at the end of a four year cycle where we have a common experience. It's not the same. Not it's not, you know, like white leftists in the streets are not having the same experience. But we do have a common language and we have some degree of commonality. And I think that can act as a binding agent at these protests that people should really think about. Um, and then I think the other thing is that when we saw the protests, formal organizations kind of fell away over time, which has its pluses and minuses. But I think people are going to have to find a way to keep organizations involved because organizations represent groups of people and we need large masses of people. And also organizations are often built on a particular type of strategy. Sometimes it's a good strategy, sometimes it's a bad strategy, but we need all hands on deck. So I think finding a way of keeping them engaged in the long term is a, is a tough thing that autonomous social movements don't always do well. So what you said about the police and their dynamic with white supremacists. It's got me thinking about Trump's relationship with the police, and he has a pretty unprecedented backing from police unions. He has repeatedly offered police legal cover for acts of violence he says should or should have occurred. And he has pardoned a disgraced, murderous military officer and a torturous former sheriff to make his point. 
What role do you see his relationship with the police playing in what happens in the next few days and weeks? You know, there's that old line that the the boss is the best recruiter for the union. Well, the police are the best recruiter for the anti-police protests because they're just beating people so spectacularly every night. So it doesn't make any sense when you think about that, unless you think about them as people who think of the protesters probably correctly as their opponents, that they don't see themselves as part of the community. They see themselves in opposition to it. Um, and that they are fighting for a particular type of power, a particular interest, set of interests, their own. And Trump aligns with those. I, I think Trump has a vision of the country uh, where certain types of people and certain ways of thinking have hegemony. And having a militarized police that's autonomous, that thinks for itself, that has its own vision of the world uh, is something that's in his favor. I mean, police unions are the most reactionary element of the police themselves, which is saying something. And so it does, it's not a surprise that they're going to support Trump. And they become the linchpin of a law and order strategy that is basically one of those bread and butter things that the GOP has to recruit people. And so I think it just makes sense that that's how they get energy. The other piece of this is that, you know, and I wrote about this for NBC, like they are, the GOP is really building this vigilante identity in their voter base. And I think it, on the one hand, it, they do this because it, it that sense of being a vigilante, meaning, meaning someone who kind of breaks the rules to, to solve bigger problems, that kind of person is really engaged. And that really engaged person will go out and vote and will tell other people to vote. They'll do things that help the GOP's electoral chances. But they also engage in violence. It also sends a message of acceptable violence. And that kind of idea of acceptable violence is at the fundamental core of policing. And so there's a lot of sort of uh, concentric circles here that make up the image of what kind of citizenry is in the Trump imagination. And it's about people who use violence to initiate social control. So what advice do you have for people right now who are trying to process these events, trying to figure out how to interact with them, trying to figure out how to make sense of the next few weeks? Well, I think that the first thing is I, you know, I, I talk a lot about like eschatology and the end of the world and stuff. Um, but I'm not a tremendously pessimistic person. I, I think that what we have now is what we have always had, which is the ability to come together and build something new. And that is true now. If there's Biden or if there's Trump, that is always going to be true. And so I think what happens right now is that we are in a crisis. It's likely one that will replicate over the coming years because of the instability that we live with institutionally. And it requires us to create really strong community bonds inside organizations that are meaningful to us and social networks that are meaningful. That means mutual aid networks. That means solidarity networks. That means working with your union or your church or whatever it takes to have strong things where you can depend on other people to work with you. Because that is the kind of thing that a vibrant society is built on. That's actually the dual power. It's just us when we're together. Um, and so I think, you know, what gets us through these things is the same thing that makes a mass action successful. Lots of people willing to come together and do something, support one another, to take risks with one another, to take risks for one another, to take care of each other when they need it, um, to take, to make social bonds more significant than the alienated kind of coercive world we live in. And so I think what people should do in the next couple of weeks and 
gosh, I hope I can take my own advice, is to talk to other people, to figure out what they need, to figure out methods of communicating, to figure out ways of getting people the stuff that, that's going to be really necessary in the coming weeks, and to really dig in because it's going to require this for a long, long time. In fact, this should be the new permanent way of being. To survive, it's going to require doing it together. We do not any longer have the luxury of kind of being stuck in like suburban enclaves that are generally safe, even if they're alienated. Our alienation will no longer keep us safe. So I think that this can be the first step of just building those strong bonds to rely on one another. I couldn't agree more. What you said about how this situation will likely replicate itself, I know it's not what people want to hear right now, because a lot of people are hoping we can get rid of Trump and then everything will be okay. And while I do think things will be better and that a lot of lives will be saved, everything that delivered us to this moment will still be in play. So if we don't radically reorganize some things, we're looking at a nightmare of this flavor, maybe in four years and in some ways sooner. You know, I was leading a workshop recently with some folks who asked me what the difference would be between organizing under Trump if he holds on to the presidency versus Biden if he replaces Trump. And I told them it's a really great question because whether we're talking about neoliberalism or a fascist state, we're looking at a world in which mass surveillance facilitates mass criminalization. And when we pair that potential for mass criminalization, with the kind of mass displacement that is inevitable with so many evictions and so much financial collapse, we are talking about mass disposal. Under Trump, that displacement and disposal will be aimed at destroying scapegoated people and their communities. Under neoliberalism, that reshuffling and disposal would just be long-term structural maintenance. Like, where do you put people who no longer have any place in a society? As businesses close and jobs disappear and fewer people can access housing, those people become a threat to the system if they are not contained and controlled in some way. Because when the economic dynamics of a society can no longer sustain its existing set of social relations, struggle and reorganization are inevitable, as Ruthie Gilmore tells us. And that struggle occurs at all levels. The people who don't fit into society struggle for something that includes them, that allows them to endure, and they fight to reorganize society on those terms. And the people who govern these misfits, who no longer know how to contain them, struggle and reorganize to make sure they're not a problem. Because the first function of authority is to maintain itself. And none of this is a personality or character assessment of Biden, although I, I have my opinions about that too. It's the reality of a system. There's a reason that prison reform is bipartisan, and there's a reason that both parties want us to think that we're closing prisons when we're really just outsourcing confinement into people's homes left and right. So I hope people will kind of hold that in their minds as much as they want to believe that defeating Trump will save us, because if we can remove Trump, that will be a great victory, worthy of celebration, and I believe his removal is one of the great moral and political imperatives of our time. But it will be the start of a new chapter, not the end of a story. And our best chance, moving into the future, is to build bonds of solidarity. That's what's going to help us to survive in disastrous times, which is something I appreciate about your work, Shane, that you always emphasize that for us, and I, I really appreciate you for that. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. So this episode, I believe, will be airing Friday. So folks will have the weekend, and it's going to be a tense time. Some people will be very busy, but some people will be looking to fill their time constructively. So we're going to have some resources in the show notes, including some virtual trainings people can take on some different organizing topics. There's also an activity for a remote protest event I am co-organizing that people are welcome to take part in. So I also wanted to ask you, Shane, is there something you would recommend for folks to check out this weekend? So yes, there actually is. Um, there's a bunch of folks on Friday and Saturday doing a performance of Bright Room um, over Zoom. It's a, it's a play about uh, the Weimar Republic, and it will be starting at 5 p.m. Pacific time on Friday. That's the first act, and I will be in that panel at, after, after that act is over. And then on Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific time will be the second act. And uh, I will send you over the link for it, and you can put it in the show notes if that makes sense. I'm not going to say too much, but it is a very upsetting play. <laughs> so, but it is one that's really informative, and I think it resonates a lot right now, and I think people will really enjoy it. So it will be in the show notes, uh, maybe with a content warning that it's very upsetting. And if any of you need something that feels more uplifting or that involves skill building or practical exercises, you can find that in the show notes too. Basically, however you want to handle this, we've got you covered. We will also have info on that remote rally that some friends and I are co-organizing for November 2nd that will take place over Zoom and Facebook that I think will be a good option for people who can't be in the streets because as much as we all wish we could be out there, not everyone can be out there in person, especially with COVID in the mix. It's going to be an issue-focused night rather than a Biden-focused night, so if that's your speed, I hope you will join us. Because while we do need a lot of people in the streets, we need to link up in all ways, in all spaces, to build the power, solidarity, and spirit that we are going to need in these times. Shane, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I, I deeply appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm always happy to come. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.